0: To the November podcast of Ordinary Means. I'm Sean Nolan, your host, here today at the table with Matt Bowling. Hey, Sean. Hey, Matt. So welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. And we've got a special guest today. Uh, joining us is Jason Stellman. Hey, Jason. How are you doing? Uh, glad to have you on, Jason. Uh, just a little intro so folks know who you are. Uh, Jason is the pastor of Exile Presbyterian Church. In where is that in That's in the Northwest, but where:
1: That is in Woodenville, Washington.
0: Woodenville, Washington. is that with a name like Exile, is it way out of the way?
1: <laughs> no, it's only
0: about 20 minutes from Seattle, actually. Okay, so you're not, you're not too far from that.: We're not too far at all. We, we keep having uh, keep having Seattle guys on the podcast:
2: It's intentional. We're taking over the world actually. Yeah. <laughs> don't tell anybody.
0: Yeah, well, I'm the guy recording it, so uh, it's still run from Pennsylvania. Um, now you have uh, just uh, if anybody wants more info on you, they can check you out at your blog, um, which, as you and I talked about earlier, is in Latin. so for those of us who don't read Latin, uh, we're gonna be you're, they're gonna be better off googling your name.
1: Well, just the title of the blog is in Latin. Just the actual stuff I write is in English.
0: Oh, that's good. That's, good. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: you know, very helpful. <laughs> I'm just trying to be contextual.
0: That, well, yes, that's appropriate. So uh, they would go to, uh, if you speak Latin, it's uh, deregnisduobus.blogspot.com. Uh, otherwise, just Google Jason Stellman, two L's, one N, and uh, you'll find his blog will come out. Uh, did you guys know? This is just a random bit of a tidbit of information that our our three listeners will enjoy hearing. If you Google the phrase "ordinary means," our website is the first three hits. Wow! How about wow, that? Wow!
2: You've
1: you've arrived.
0: <laughs> we have, and that's not that's not even the advertised ones. You know how they have the two advertise advertisements with every Google hit. Uh, I don't think it was even the uh, the advertisement. It was right up there on the top. They didn't even put ads, you know, because they know you're not supposed to advertise in church. Right. Yeah. Google's good about that. Well, hey, what we want to talk about uh, this month is uh, an issue that has just come, uh, I don't know if we would say this has come to a head, but it's been something that's we've talked about for a while, which is the whole federal vision debate, uh but there's one particular individual who is a part of your presbytery um Peter Lighthart, um and he uh he responded this has been uh our our report the report that came from the PCA General Assembly in 2007 uh back in 2007 Peter Lightheart responded to that with an open letter and uh, am i am i correct Jason that that was the sort of the impetus for then the Presbytery turning and examining him?
1: Yeah, um, the 35th General Assembly, which met in June of '07, issued their Federal Vision Report with nine uh, declarations at the end uh, concerning issues that they, uh, that the PCA thought were um, unconfessional, or outside the bounds of, of confessional Reformed theology. And then I think it was actually that very day. Peter was not at that that general assembly meeting in uh, Memphis, but I think that very day uh, he issued an open letter to the clerk of the Northwest Presbytery, Rob Rayburn, on his blog, um, responding to the nine declarations of the Federal Vision Report, and that is kind of what got the ball rolling.
0: Okay. Okay.
2: And this is, if for our listeners who may not who may be new to the controversy, this is actually the second time. Uh, in recent history that Peter Lighthart's views have been examined by our Presbytery. This was a more narrow examination. Is that a fair way to put it, uh, Jason? This was a bit more narrow investigation than the last time?
1: Yeah. In in fact, um, I was here up in the Northwest Presbytery um, when the conclusions of the previous study committee uh, were presented. I wasn't wasn't here yet uh, when the committee was formed, but my understanding was that the initial uh, charge of the committee was to examine the federal vision in general, and then they narrowed it down and said, let's examine uh, Peter Lighthart in particular, but even that was, was more broad than our mandate this time. Our mandate this time was specifically to uh, stick to these nine declarations of the GA report
0: well now who some of our listeners are going to be listening to this and they're going to say who in the world is Peter lighthart I've, I've never heard the name um, how how can we introduce people to uh, to Peter lighthart
2: well Peter is a PCA pastor uh, he's, a, a, well, he's a minister in the PCA and after going to seminary he pastored for about six years in the Birmingham area um, and ministering there um, basically came across uh, a Presbyterianism uh, in some of the churches there that didn't seem right to him, um, in that they acted towards the Covenant children much like um, some of our Baptist brothers might. And it struck him as odd. Um, This is, I'm taking this from a lunch that I had, uh, one of my ruling elders and I had with Peter actually at the Presbytery where we were discussing this uh, report. And struck him as odd and started getting him working on reworking, uh, trying to think about covenant baptism in more depth. He was um, trying, and he indicates this in his response to the report that, um, you know, where he started thinking about baptism. This is like on the first page of Peter's response, that he earnestly wanted to try and figure out how to rightly interpret baptism now saves you from First Peter. And so, I think... Which is the
0: topic of of the book he just recently released.
2: The Baptized Body. Yes. Right. Which is probably his, um, you know... uh,
0: Magnum opus? Most
2: explicit declaration of his views, although in his paper, he does take back a few of the phrases in the book, which I thought was interesting. Because he's a very reflective, very willing to be... um, What's the right way to say this, Jason? Right, he's willing to have people critique him and for him to actually listen to it in terms of, you know, that he's got a genuine concern he's trying to advance. Yeah, uh, at least no I, I, found, I found that on Presbytery floor, I found that in personal conversation, um, you know, that you might gain some things you could say to Covenant children in particular with Peter's view, but do you lose the ability to say some things to other people because of taking this view and he was like I hadn't really thought about that and so he's a he's an open sort of person it's, it's interesting so the backstory so he pastored for six years in the Birmingham area and started thinking through baptism went to do a PhD um, and began to work on a motif that's the the subject of his dissertation which is published by Woodson stock um, of, of Analogizing or laying beside each other the ordination rite for an Aaronic priest and the baptism of a child. So, efficacy through the lens of what does an ordination do to an Aaronic priest is a similar thing going on in the baptism of a covenant child. And so, this is something he's been working on for quite a long time. Um, and so, it's interesting when we sat down for lunch a few weeks ago I asked him you know because my heart we live Jason and I live in the northwest and people here are pagan pagan we don't live in the Bible Belt we don't live in Christian land Um, most of our concern is not with um, the treatment of covenant children most of our concern is how do you proclaim the gospel to people who know nothing Um, so you know in terms of context it although obviously we're concerned for the treatment of covenant children, all that kind of stuff. It's not that we're unconcerned about it, but it's not like the big issue to us in our ministry here. I asked him, with all the other pressing needs that are going on in terms of things to be thought about in the Christian community and in terms of our witness, even just in America today, why were you interested in this? And interestingly enough, he said, "Um, I like solving puzzles. (laughs) And, And that really struck me. Um, that's an inherently male kind of thing to do. It's kind of one of the aspects of, um, if you will, taking dominion. Um, but in the so other we'll, hand,
0: we'll blame the federal vision on manliness.
2: Well, but no, I don't want to blame it on that, but it, I, I understand that because I'm one of those kinds of people that likes to solve puzzles. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I do wonder... Sean, you might remember I reflected on a conversation that Sean and I had with an OPC brother who was uh, not an advancer of the Federal Vision, but certainly as someone who was more than willing to put up with it and could see its good points. And in reflecting on that conversation with this brother, this was maybe a year and a half ago, um, I drove home from that conversation saying to myself, I bet Satan is just thrilled that we are busy spending our time and energy Um, fine-tuning our theology. Not to discount the theology or the importance of it, because I certainly am not doing that. Um, But it does interest me um, the unseen reality that's going on behind all of this. Um, Hmm. You know, that that we're content to figure out puzzles.
0: Well, now, Peter Um, Peter Lighthart is not uh, in the Northwest though, is he? He,
2: yeah, he's actually he teaches right now. He teaches at New Saint Andrews, which is in Moscow, Idaho, which is in the peninsula. So it's you know
0: over the border from Washington. Okay, so it is it is technically in the northwest. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. The uh, so he's he's written uh, he's been writing on these topics as as you uh, hinted at. He's been writing on topics that would be of interest to. Uh, to our podcast because he's written extensively on the ordinary means of grace. He's written on baptism. He's written on communion. Um, I don't know if he's written much on preaching um, but I know he's written on prayer. So so he's he's had a, a, a real uh, broad scope of writing in those areas. Um, I remember reading him. I was telling Jason earlier I, I remember reading him in the 80s when he was writing with Jim Jordan in uh, Biblical Horizons, and uh, I, I remember at the time thinking it odd that he was arguing for what uh, what we call Pado communion—that um, is, that all uh, all covenant children, all baptized children, should be uh, allowed to partake at uh, at the Lord's Supper. Uh, now it's interesting. Two decades, well, yes, I guess two decades later to see that really the federal vision, and I think I've said this before on the podcast, the federal vision is a, is a fleshing out of a theology that fundamentally believes in, uh, that, the, that the children of the covenant have no um, difference in benefits given to them than the adults of the covenant. Uh, Now, in the PCA, we we have that distinction. We have what's called a communing—we have communing members and non-communing members, and the children of believers are non-communing members until they make profession of their faith. Uh, And so, Lighthart himself has spent the last two decades writing on these issues, uh, saying that there shouldn't be a separation, yet operating in a denomination— where that that separation exists. Uh, Do you guys think maybe this is a good question to ask at this point? Is that a biblical separation?
2: It's certainly one that's been honored a long time in the Reformed tradition and theology.
1: And let me just jump in, too, Sean, and and say, you know, that's a good observation that you made, because there have been—some have even said that the entire— uh, soteriological position of the federal vision, uh, the entire, uh, position with respect to salvation is uh, just an outworking of their view of the sacrament of baptism. So it's almost as if, uh, um, salvation issues like justification, union, election are kind of, you know, arrived at post hoc. They're arrived at after the fact. Um, they begin with a view of baptismal efficacy and then, and then let that play out. Uh, into what has become known as the federal vision today.
0: And and it's interesting that the majority report, which was the report that uh, said his views were not in conflict with the confession, at the end of that report, um, they essentially said what you just said and and placed it as a concern, that there was perhaps... Too much uh, focus put on the externals of baptism, when in reality the scriptures he was pointing to were talking about uh, the inward and spiritual.
1: Well, yeah, um, you know, that was one of the one of the one of the men on the minority side of the study committee. Uh, this was his his very concern that uh, that Peter uh gives to baptism the role that scripture gives to faith. And mm. that that was that was a concern on the minority side of the committee certainly.
0: Well it it does come out though in the concerns at the end of the majority report which I thought was um was certainly fair on the part of the committee that not only did the committee say uh I guess this was Rob Rayburn who wrote the majority report is that correct? Yeah. Okay, that not only did he, in writing that report, say, I I don't think Peter Lighthart is unorthodox, um, but I'm willing to say we do have concerns about him and some aspects of his theology that we think he needs to think through some more.
1: Yeah, Um, that's important to point out, and I think people need to understand that the difference between the majority and the minority on this committee is not that the majority thinks Peter Liehart's theology is correct, and the minority thinks it's incorrect. Um, there was a pretty, pretty broad consensus on the committee that there are plenty of things about Peter's theology that are troubling and problematic. Uh, the real issue boiled down to whether or not those problematic issues in his theology strike at the vitals of our system of doctrine, or if they don't. And so, when you read the uh, certain parts of the majority report, you may get, you may think that you're actually reading the minority report because it's, it's, you know, being critical. Yes. But, um, but the point of the majority was, yes, there are things that are of concern here and need to be, uh, thought through and, and perhaps reformulated, but we don't think that these strike at the vitals of our system of doctrine, whereas the minority report argues that they do.
2: It's, it's interesting, in it, um, just in this context of is there a division between the kind of benefits that a, that a, um, a covenant child receives and a, and a call him an adult professor just so everybody knows what we're talking about. Um, this is one of the personal questions that I brought to Peter on the floor after the discussion before we went to lunch. As I said, do you in this lose the ability to say what Paul said um, in 1 Corinthians? Some of you were adulterers, perverts, do um, you lose the ability to say that for some, an absolutely definitive change that is that cannot be revoked has happened, or is it conditional for everyone? And he said, huh, I hadn't thought about the fact that you might lose something by this viewpoint instead of just gain something. Because Paul certainly, as we learned, all three of us at Westminster, it seems quite clear that Paul is willing to put out there um, a view of definitive sanctification, that somebody has gone from death to life and they ain't going back. So I, I think that we'll see how Peter develops as it goes, but he seemed genuinely struck by that, that perhaps an adult professing baptized believer um, who had evidence you know and you know that's all wiggly and squiggly of being born again um you know could you say that um that you were like that but you'll never be like that again that you've been transformed by the spirit so it 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 seems to miss that for some there's an external attachment that they want to call some sort of vital relationship with christ and some sense of being united to Christ, a covenantal sense. But for others, there's a genuine union with Christ that's unchanging, that God will bring it to completion because he began it. And do we actually cheapen what we can say to those people because of this other view that we've picked up? And he genuinely, I think, hadn't thought through that. So it was interesting, at least.
0: You know, Matt, you keep bringing up that uh, that Peter has been very um, uh, honest... Uh, in in his responses with where he, uh, maybe he's been willing to say, I don't know, or I I haven't thought about that. Uh, Maybe one question that we need to answer is is this issue of, we're talking about a situation where this man could have, or potentially could in the future, lose uh, his ordination in the PCA um, over issues that, He's still thinking about where do you relate his being a minister uh, who must hold to certain views and his being an academic and a scholar who is consistently contemplating views. How do we how do we reconcile the two of those?
1: Well, that's something that that I you know I brought up on the floor of Presbytery during our our uh, three hour uh, debate is. Look, nobody is uh, is begrudging um, anyone else of asking the hard questions. Um, the thing that Matt just brought up, the phenomenon of people being, in some sense, united to Christ and then uh, losing that. You know, John 15, Romans 11, the vine and the branches, some that don't bear fruit are cut off. Certainly we need to um, think about that, and we need to... Uh, we need to wrestle with those texts. And so it's not the phenomenon, uh, of that happening that is in dispute. It's not that, uh, you know, the, whatever, the confessional side of of the issue is is that that cannot happen or that does not happen. I think, I think to answer your question though, Sean, the, the issue is, are we able and willing to talk about that biblical problem, namely somebody who has some, External relationship with Christ that looks real for a time, and then and then that person is cut off. Are we willing to talk about that in such a way as to not contradict the confession that we have all vowed to uphold as ministers in the PCA? Um, I find it interesting that when you read the actual Westminster Confession, whenever they talk about um, what happens at baptism, they they always use the language of ingrafting instead of union. Whenever they talk about union, they're always talking about saving union. The union, the mystical union accomplished by the Holy Spirit, which cannot be broken. But when, when they talk about the benefit of baptism, they talk about ingrafting. And I think that's a good example of being willing to use language that doesn't confuse people, but rather uh, using language that does justice to what you're trying to communicate from Scripture but it doesn't do it in such a way as to, as to violate the standards we've subscribed to.
2: An interesting point, the debate as it went, and this is probably typical of Presbyterians where there's a highly charged debate, the people who were parties to the report were given a fair number of opportunities to speak. So Jason spoke several times, but many of the men, even who had concerns, like myself, I, you know, it was kind of where the moderator got to the point where it was like, is there anybody who's not spoken? you know, who wants to. Um, and so you kind of got one shot to make an argument and I'm not sure I made my most effective in my one shot. But one thing that was very interesting and telling in my mind about this, and it perhaps it could have been, it would have changed the argument quite significantly, but looking back it might have been useful to have done, is that when Rob made his presentation of the majority report, um, he talked about Peter being reformed. And that Peter was well within the reformed stream of thinking. And that he felt that that Rob's argument was that he thought that it would be be wrong for us to remove from our ministry, from Christ's ministry in the PCA, um, a man who was thoroughgoingly reformed. And he ticked off, I don't know, eight doctrines probably. What was interesting about that was, um, in Rob's argument he never talked about Peter being um, a Westminster standards guy did you catch that Jason as he went yeah, through yeah. And, he, and he argued it, it, that was never the case and I know from outside um, experiences through others um, that the general ethos of the teaching style of Peter is—it's okay if we disagree with the with the Westminster's language. That's not what we're after. We're after the Bible's language, and so I think there's actually a genuine disagreement about the role that the confessional standards play in our lives as teachers.
1: Yeah, there's no—I think there's no question um, about that, and that's what's frustrating is because the whole point of having a confession is so that it can tell us what reformed is what is and what is not
2: reformed well for the PCA, not for the whole stream not for another denomination but for a minister in our denomination yeah I don't get to I
1: don't have the luxury of picking my you know six favorite favorite things about our theology and saying this is what it means to be reformed you know someday I want to book, write a book called uh, Reformed is Not Just a State of Mind because sometimes you get the idea that, you know, whether it's tulip to this guy over here or predestination to that guy or covenant to this person, um, everyone gets to kind of u- treat reformed theology as if it's a wax nose that you can shape. And I think that, Matt, your point is is fair, that um, our at, for the PCA, we have defined reformed in terms of what what our confessions teach. And one thing I tried to bring up on the floor during the debate is if we're talking about um, the covenant of works versus covenant of grace structure, the efficacy of baptism, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, union with Christ, election, and final justification, and the relationship of justification to sanctification, um, certainly this strikes at the vitals of our system. And if these things aren't part and parcel of being reformed, then I, I just don't know what is.
2: Right. Yeah. Well put. Absolutely. Sean, did you drop like, off the map?
0: No, I'm I'm here. I'm I'm wondering, um, what do we say to? Um, Maybe we could we could step back a uh, a moment because I think I think maybe some of our listeners might be dropping off the map at this point wondering, you know, you keep mentioning the scripture and you you keep mentioning the confession um aren't they related? <laughs> uh I you know, is it is it that uh it almost sounds like we're saying or that the that Peter Lightheart is saying of himself, you know, I'm I'm biblical and the confession isn't biblical
2: well, well I, I, uh, if we chair go ahead Jason
1: well Rob Rob, Rob Rayburn said that uh, on the floor he, one of the things he said was sure Peter um, Peter uses um, language that is unconfessional but so does the Bible so there was a sort of you know subtle um, pitting of the Bible over against the confession you know like we all know that these two things don't you know match up all the time Wh- whose team are we going to be on when they inevitably are in conflict and i just that's just you know not to me that's not a, a an assumption that i that i hold to i don't think that the that i have to choose you know between the two i think that the confessions the westminster confession and catechisms are a faithful the best and most faithful Uh, representation of what the Bible teaches.
2: Here's the way part of that, just to go into a little bit of detail about what Jason just said, because he said it very accurately, it is a pitting. So, for example, uh, if you were to take Romans 6, okay, about baptism, assume it's water baptism, which, you know, it's debated, right? But take that it's water baptism, right? There's a sense there in which someone is united to Christ, all right? It's a classic text. Union with Christ, the, but it's not—it's not one of the proof texts when you look at the Confession about union with Christ. Because, as Jason said, what the Confession writers tried to do was partic- pick a label for a doctrine that was representative of a segment of the teaching of Scripture. They wanted to segment saving union with Christ, and. They said, these passages are what we're talking about. We recognize that, you know, John 15 is out there. We recognize that Hebrews is out there, Hebrews 6. We recognize that um, Romans 11 is out there. Um, We recognize Romans 6 is out there. But what we are interested in talking about here, under the label that we've chosen of union with Christ, is the narrow, effective work of the Spirit, the fruit of effectual calling. So they chose to pick a narrower category to segment a part of the teaching of scripture. Peter thinks that's unjust. His sense is that if we pick and choose among um, the justification passages in the scriptures and we pick those which are clearly forensic and we call those of the passages are the ones that are crucial in terms of justification but we don't want to broaden the net, and Jason covers this in an appendix for the Minority Report, second appendix I think, but if we, if, on Peter's view, if we don't broaden the net and include what um, James has to say about justification, and the way justification is used in the in the Old Testament, if we're stuck on just these few Pauline examples for what we want to say about justification, that's unjust. The The biblical category of justification, which is a big tent, should trump the confessions category, which is a small tent. And so he sort of... Jason, tell me if you think this is a fair way to put it. He is disagreeing with the way of theologizing that the confession writers were doing.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think, um... You know, Peter's Peter's position is if we've got justification language that's used in Scripture then it necessarily has to inform, broaden, tweak, whatever. Our doctrine of justification, here's what he here's what he says, I'll quote him, um, justification language has a wider and more flexible usage in Scripture than in Protestant systematics. We have narrowed our attention to one picture or setting for justification among several, and the result has been a narrowing of our doctrine justification. So his argument is that wherever justification language is found, whatever that text is saying in Scripture, whether it's in the Old Testament prophets or in James or Paul, we have to make our doctrine of justification account for for that language. So there is a methodological difference there, certainly.
2: And in that sense, Scripture trumps the confessional formulation, because he looks at the confession and says, the confession editor were doing the wrong thing. They don't well,
1: uh, see how. To... Well, uh, sorry to cut you off, Matt. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to say I don't think he would say that Scripture trumps uh, ju- the, the confession. I think he would he would read the chapter on justification in our confession and say, "There's nothing I disagree with here. I just happen to think a whole lot more stuff ab- about justification than the narrow forensic issue." So I don't think he would want to you know, um, question or or dismiss forensic justification at all. But what he would want to do is say, but justification is a whole lot more than what the divines wrote down in the 1640s.
2: I, I think you're right. That's fair. That's a very fair way of putting
0: it. It would also be fair to say that the divines, uh, Jason, you mentioned this earlier, uh, in their choice of words, uh, avoided... Um, some of the controversies that they had in their own day. Uh, by saying, by using words like ingrafting and union uh, in their appropriate places, they avoided there being uh, some confusion among those who might have had a higher uh, view of baptism and thought that, uh, you know, coming from a Catholic background, they might have still retained views uh, that saw baptism as having a redemptive effect.
1: Yeah, and, and that's part, that's just kind of goes with being a team player. I think, um, unlike, let's say, the Heidelberg Catechism, which was written by two guys, uh, our, our standards were written by a bunch of guys. And, um, sometimes what that involves is figuring out a way to say something that, uh, um, both re- faithfully reflects the teaching of Scripture, um, but also doesn't cause unnecessary confusion, and that's kind of the irony, I think, of, of the federal vision as a whole. They're they're trying to alleviate confusion. Um, the problem, though, is um, they're causing they're giving rise to more questions than they're answering. Um, they're being misunderstood by everybody. Uh, I mean, if if they're constantly complaining that they are being misunderstood well if your job is to make things clear if your job is to make unclear things more clear then why is everybody misunderstanding you and and why is everybody misunderstanding you to be saying the same thing that is a question that I think that they need to answer
2: it's it's very very similar if you read and then I'm I've cautiously told people about this organization in the past, but the Trinity—what is it? Trinity Foundation, the late um, John Robbins' organization out of Tennessee—reissued uh, a few years ago um, uh, a paper that originally went to the entire General Assembly in the early '80s, written by O. Palmer Robertson, and it's called "The Current Justification Controversy." Uh, and when you read through as a faculty member um, o palmer 's I think fairly dispassionate description, I think it 's quite fair uh, description of the goings on at Westminster over the theology of Norman Shepherd. this would be some thirty years ago now. Um, many of the same exact kinds of things were being said, not just on the theological level but on the personal level and I think that one of, in one sense one of the good things about Peter is that his influence is so much smaller uh, than Shepherd's was um, but on the other hand I think that he equally um, is misunderstood like Shepherd was and wants to sort of say no no you're not you're misunderstanding me you're forgetting how narrow I want this to be considered the realm in which I want this to be considered in is extraordinarily narrow um, and it makes for bad writing when you're constantly reminding people of what you're not saying. And, you know, when you're sort of trying to pioneer something, you're a champion for the new thing you're trying to say. So that's all to be appreciated. We've, I'm sure we've all done that with a certain emphasis that we thought was underrepresented to a congregation or in a to a certain setting where we wanted to teach it. We've all taught something that's extraordinarily narrow but we thought was very important and didn't qualify it with everything. So I have some sympathy to the methodology because I've done the very thing myself. But in the context that we live in, I think that you need to affirm, um, before you tweak. And that's why I like, to, in particular, I think, Jason, you're probably, John Frame was probably long gone from Westminster by the time you got there. But that was something that I appreciated about the way that Dr. Frame taught us, which was he taught us what he would call the party line. He would teach us the orthodox view. We'd look through the confession, we'd look through the scriptures, and he'd teach it to us and say, and then he'd say to us, with deference to the confession, to say, here are some areas where you might think about this. The language could have been formulated maybe a little bit differently, a little bit more helpfully here. The concept is great, but, you know, and he would do it with deference to the confessional standard. And I think that's the difference here in terms of tone that might be helpful.
0: Jason, we've uh, you, obviously you've been involved in this process. You've had a, a key role on the committee. I think you were the chairman of the committee. Is that correct?
1: I was the acting chair. The, okay. the chairman was unable to be there.
0: Okay, um, so you were pretending to be a chairman.
1: I was pretending. I was doing my best. Now, and this was at the at the presbytery. At presbytery.
0: What what were the and then what was the. Um, what was your role then as a committee? Did you just you know did you shine the bright light in Peter's face and ask him questions? Did you uh, interact with him via email? What was that? What was the process?
1: There was a lot of good cop, bad cop. You know, we had him in a in an interrogation room at a local police precinct, and you know we didn't, we denied him food and water for, for you know we softened him up for for the hard questions. Um, no, actually, it was um, Peter was not involved in the process as far as our committee meetings. He obviously was the subject of the committee, not the not a member on the committee. Um, he was. We, we basically we would meet as a committee, and um, and especially during those early meetings, it was not yet apparent that there were going to be two reports. I think that um, all of us were hoping we would have one report. Um, but then after our first meeting we kind of um, went through the peter's nine uh, declarations or nine responses to the nine declarations and it became apparent after that first meeting that there unless the minds can be changed in the meantime there will
0: be two reports um, Okay so and, you were dealing so with Peter by way of his writings primarily to,
1: Yes okay um, and that that was uh, primarily, that's what we were doing, and that was a self-conscious decision on our part. Um, le- there's there's no there's no want of uh, of writing um, from Peter's pen, and so let's let's um, let's look specifically at the Baptized Body, which was his most recent book on baptism. Uh, we looked at uh, his chapter in the book, The Federal Vision, which was edited by Steve Wilkins. Uh, his chapter is called "Judge Me, O God." and it's about justification. Um, those were the two main things we looked at, in addition to his open letter to the Clerk of Presbytery. And once we actually had some rough drafts of our reports, we sent them to Peter uh, for, for responses. And uh, on a couple of items, you know, on the report that I wrote, the Minority Report, uh, he made suggestions and said, you know, yes, you have correctly um, reflected my thinking here, um, whether it's outside the pale, the presbytery will decide, but over on this paragraph, I think that you unfairly represented me, and this is why I think so. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, then, then I would um, have the discretion to go and, and modify that and make it more fair so that there's no question uh, whether we're reflecting him correctly or not. Um, and then when the reports were done, Peter wrote a, a lengthy response to them which um was sent out to the entire Presbytery along with the majority and minority reports. So that's kind of the way the way we did it. We we got to the point where we had a couple of rough drafts and then we brought Peter into the mix and said, what do you think of these two reports? Do they do they fairly reflect you or not?
0: So on those reports, so those reports were the were the fruition of of that committee's work of meeting with Peter uh, or or at least of of Reading him and then uh, interacting with him uh, through writing, what was the uh, just real quick list for us the talking points on the on that report most of our listeners probably haven't read these yet uh, what were the key what were the six or seven key issues
1: well um, on the minority report um, the first issue was um, on the so-called bicovenantal structure of the Westminster Standards. Uh, and and this, is, this is language coming from the General Assembly's report. Okay. Does the Bible teach and do our confessions insist that we hold to the idea that there were two overarching covenants? A covenant of works made with Adam before the fall and the covenant of grace that was made with Adam after the fall? uh that was the first that was the first issue and um, the second one was on um, the benefits of baptism the degree to which baptism is effectual uh for uh the infant who's baptized uh, the third thing we talked about was the imputation of Christ's obedience and uh in this section i specifically avoided language of active or passive obedience because as many people know uh, there were there was discussion and debate during the original Westminster Assembly concerning whether or not that language is the most helpful. And so our confession actually comes down uh, in, a, in a kind of consensus uh, fashion on that and talks about uh, the perfect obedience and, and sacrifice of Christ. And so the, um, the section in the report that deals with this uh, talks about the imputation of Christ's obedience, which is something that Peter has said he's um not sure what he whether or not he agrees with that kind of language um, the next section was on on union with christ uh, justification and sanctification okay um, and then uh there's another section dealing specifically with union with christ and then the last bit is about uh final justification whether or not justification is initiated in this life and then um and then given a final status on the last day, so I think there are five or six headings, five or six talking points that the minority report sought to address.
0: Okay, now if you were to, um, if you were to have to, uh, how can I put this? If these these talking points become influential in the thinking of a pastor. What are they going to look like in the um in the ministry of that pastor? what are some of the things that uh, people listening to this podcast who are part of a church might want to keep their ears open for what kind of language might they want to be listening for that could be um questionable
1: Well that's a good question if i had i'd say if I had a nickel for every time I've heard that either Reformed theology generally or um, confessional strict subscriptionists in particular, uh, teach that um, our relationship with God is solely forensic and solely legal. If, I've had, if I had a nickel for every time that charge was laid, I'd probably have a couple of bucks by now. Um, <laughs> and so w- w- when, my ears always perk up when I hear forensic... Pitted against familial. Uh, when I when I courtroom hear,
0: versus family room.
1: Yeah, courtroom versus family room. Uh, Hellenistic versus Hebrew. Uh, this there's a sort of trend away from um, anything forensic, anything smacking of legal categories. Um, you know, Adam cold, cold, yeah, it's cold, it's clinical, it's detached, it's it's Greek. Um, of course, reformed theology has always taught that um, there is a double benefit to the work of Christ, justification and sanctification. And that in the, under the rubric of sanctification, we talk about infused righteousness, we talk about renewal of the whole man, We talk about growth and working out our salvation. We've never, um, we've never shied away from these things. Um, and so if you're sitting in the pew and you hear your pastor dismiss or call into question um, the metaphor of the court or um, the idea of a covenant of works or anything any you know dismissing the idea of merit out of hand, in my experience, there's always a, a, an agenda lurking behind uh, this this attitude and the agenda is we don't we're not comfortable with, um, forensic legal categories. We don't like the idea of imputation. It necessarily uh, causes us to relate to a Christ who is outside of us rather than a Christ with whom we're united. It's basically uh, an attempt to put asunder what Reformed theology has always joined together. We just have two different categories for talking about these things. When we talk about the courtroom and, and the forensic and the legal, we're usually talking about justification.
0: justification yeah.
1: But But we have... I mean, for crying out loud, I mean, can you can you really read the Puritans and conclude that we don't care about the inner life?
2: <laughs> or that adoption isn't one of those benefits that flows from Christ, an explicit reference to being included in the family of God.
1: Yeah, it's just we just don't collapse uh, justification and sanctification, because once you deny, uh, let's say, the covenant of works and the idea that Adam was supposed to... Uh, obey God and thereby uh, gain the heavenly reward, w- once that is dismissed, then all of a sudden, what we get is a complete, a completely flattened out drama. In fact, it's not really even a drama with, with you know hills and valleys anymore. It's just a, it's a flattened out story, according to which, and, and Peter uses this language, um, hey, Adam was supposed to walk in faithful obedience, uh Abraham was supposed to walk in faithful obedience Moses was supposed to walk in faithful obedience David was supposed to walk in faithful obedience Jesus was supposed to walk in faithful obedience and you're supposed to walk with in faithful obedience. And so the gospel becomes neither uh it, it becomes not a a true antidote to the problem of law. Uh it becomes um do your best and uh, try to walk in faithful obedience and at the end of the day if you've if you've done this sufficiently then then you'll be saved. Uh, it's what dr. Horton at Westminster used to call Gospel. It's not law and it's not gospel. it's this kind of hybrid. <laughs> um, but we have always said as reformed Protestants that, the Gospel is something that solves the problem of sin, which is highlighted by law. And once Adam fell, there was no more talk of walk in faithful obedience and, and uh, you'll receive the reward. Yes, we do walk in faithful obedience, that's not the issue. The issue is what's the basis of our inheritance, what's the principle according to which we receive what Adam should have gained for us, namely eternal life. For Adam, the principle of inheritance would have been his obeying the terms of the covenant. Um, for us, the basis for our receiving eternal life is Jesus and his obedience to the terms of the covenant as second Adam, which we receive by grace alone through faith alone. That's that's what is going to be compromised when we start dismissing or calling into question issues about whether the courtroom is an apt metaphor or whether... The covenant of works is a is a biblical teaching,
0: and that's why these issues are so important to talk about. Is because, uh, and that's why the the church courts are are meeting on these issues. Uh, that's why um, I guess you've uh, your your committee, or at least the the minority of the committee, has filed a complaint against the presbytery's action. Yeah, um, the presbytery received the majority report. Uh, which meant that they agreed that uh, Peter was uh, orthodox, uh, that he was within the bounds of the confession, and there was a complaint filed. Uh, The reason that was filed, essentially, what you're saying to us now is is because the gospel is at stake.
1: Yeah, I mean, part of the issue is, yes, the gospel is at stake. And, um, you know, I think... And I brought this up on the floor of presbytery this is not you know this is not a witch hunt this is not um, you know slapping somebody on the wrist for you for a you know infelicitous use of language or or you know saying the wrong thing or saying the right thing in the wrong way um, th- these these are issues this is the issue here is uh, you weave together a bunch of threads that you find in in Peter's writings into a single cloth, and the single cloth, according to the minority of the committee, does not look reformed. So that's part of the issue. But the other issue, which occasioned the complaint, was that the methodology of the um, of the majority was that unless we can find evidence that Peter explicitly denies something that the confessions affirm, or affirm something that the confession denies, then we have no basis to judge him out of accord. So so basically, there needs to be a smoking gun that uh, takes, the, takes the form of some explicit uh, denial of, you know, some ex- explicit statement from our confession or catechisms. And um, the PCA's Standing judicial commission um, tackled this very issue uh, in the, the case against the Louisiana Presbytery, and it was determined that that is not um, the correct methodology, that a person can actually um, teach something contrary to our confessions without explicitly saying he's doing it. So that, that that's another reason why we think the Presbytery erred in receiving the majority report.
0: So it's not enough to, uh, you know, somebody comes and they say, um, I, I've read Peter Lighthart and sure he says some kind of iffy things uh you know when he's operating as an as as a scholar and he's thinking through new issues but the thing that i notice in every chapter of his books is he always comes back and says but but here's what the orthodox position is and here's what the what we we need to hold on to um you know even though i'm though i'm going over here in this direction really this is what i believe um isn't isn't he just isn't it just a matter of him being confusing uh is this really an issue of him being out of accord.
1: Well, that that is the sixty-four thousand dollar question. Uh, the majority does think he's confusing, um, but they think he is uh, safely confusing. Okay. Whereas the minority thinks that he's not only confusing, but he's actually um, undermining or teaching things that strike at the at the heart of our system of doctrine. Um, and on the floor during the debate and Matt, you may remember this, but it seemed to me that the issue kept getting couched in terms of um, either systematic versus uh, exegetical theology or in terms of um, whether we want to be a, a, a dead, stale, cold, strict subscriptionist denomination or a living, vital, vibrant, creative denomination, all these kinds of things. And one of the points I tried to bring up on the floor was Look, th- this is not. The issue here is not. First of all, the issue is not um, w- what will be the long-term effects of this decision 20 years down the road. Are we going to stifle
2: our uh, creativity? That which the- was a major part of Rob's argument.
1: It was. Uh, it was almost for the majority report.
2: He started with this long, long. Actually, finished with this long, long story about some obscure event in the history of free Presbyterianism in Scotland did it feel like to you a scare tactic Jason
1: it see yeah it seemed like um and to, and to you know to speak in Rob's defense he would say look I already made all of my you know real arguments in in the report and so you know I think his 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 long um, um Statements on the floor were meant to to buttress that, not to be the main thing. But yeah, I think you're right. I think there was it was a red herring at best, and I think it was I think it was a kind of scare tactic at worst. Because he pointed out that after this obscure ruling in the Kirk of Scotland or the Free Kirk, um, they stopped publishing books because everyone was afraid. And you know, and, and I tried to bring up, look, that's this committee is not tasked with. Uh, shaping the future of the PCA fifty years down the road. Let's let's uh, you know, quit with the delusions of grandeur here. We've got a very very narrow and specific charge, to namely determine whether or not these specific teachings are dangerous. And you know, and getting back to your point, Sean, about um, you know being an academic and pushing the boundaries. Look, there are plenty of of theologians, living and dead in our tradition, who have done very creative theology, but they've done it within the bounds, under the rubric of the confessions that they've adopted. And so I don't think that you 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 either have to be um, creative and and insightful and dig into the Bible versus you have to toe the party line. I think there are plenty of ways to engage Contemporary discussions, there are ways to uh, interact with contemporary theologies uh, outside of our own tradition and to seek to bring our tradition to bear upon upon new issues. There are ways to do that without violating your ordination vows. So it's not a question of creativity versus being confessional. I think that's a complete completely false dilemma.
2: Straw man. It, yeah, and yeah. I think also um, from the pastoral side, Since all of us pastor churches, we're not just, you know, academic theologians who like to joust about theological points. The change in the language in which we minister to people, that to which we point them as they struggle along in sanctification, um, has really moved here. And and pastorally, I can remember very vividly reading through Guy Waters' book on the Federal Vision, this was back when I was still in Pennsylvania, and calling Sean and leaving him a tearful message, which is rare for me, Um, and just saying, "I, I understand this, but what they're saying is, go faithfully obey, but oh yeah, you might not actually have the Holy Spirit who's the only way that you can ever faithfully obey. And that's the bottom line. Go faithfully obey, but oh yeah, you might be one of those temporary believers who kind of is united to Christ, who kind of has a ministry of the Spirit, you're kind of indwelt by the Spirit, but you know, um, you might kind of leave too. So you kind of don't have the kind of power that you actually kind of need, but go obey. Yeah, And and that is in such writ large contrast to this conversation I had yesterday with this great brother that I've gotten to know, just talking about how the imputed righteousness of Christ, the imputed obedience of Christ, that that was the, for many of the Puritans, was the flagstone. It was the thing to look back on with hope, that my standing with God is not based on how I'm doing or how I've done or how I'm going to do, but how Christ did. And it's on that basis that I can know that I'm adopted today, and the Father still loves me, even though I'm a louse.
1: Yeah, well, and that's all the, lost. That's all lost. Ma- what were Machen's dying words?
2: Yeah, exactly. Thank
1: God for the act of obedience of Christ. No hope without it. And so I think I think you know I'm a part of the generation uh, that appreciates irony, and I, I want to highlight just how ironic it is that uh the gentlemen who have become associated with what's called the federal vision uh got going. Um they started this um project in order to alleviate what they saw as the sort of navel gazing introspection uh, of much of uh revivalistic uh evangelicalism and reform theology. They wanted to there's a real problem they're trying to solve. And yes. I think they were their diagnosis was correct. Yes. Uh, we have, uh, w- w- when left to ourselves, we, we do make it all about us, and we do make, uh, make it subjective and cause people to, uh, unduly, um, focus upon their own works. And so, yeah, they were trying to, to, to cure a real disease, but the question is, is the cure even more, uh, dangerous than the initial disease they were trying to fix? Because, um, I mean, I've got, I've got people in my church who, uh, are coming from the sort of flagship, uh, CREC church, uh, in this area, which is the denomination that's sort of most associated with the federal vision. And they've come to us from them, and they've said, there, there is a, there's a joy, there's a freedom, there is an assurance that we have now because you point us outside of ourselves to, to Christ and what He did objectively Mm -hmm. for me. Um, that we didn't have before, because uh, we were told that we might just be covenantally united with Christ, or covenantally elect, or covenantally justified, but not really, or not savingly. And um, and so I think that they've kind of shot themselves in the foot.
2: Yeah, I, I've given an analysis before. This was a while back on the podcast, but it's interesting. It's interesting to me historically when you look at was Mr. Philadelphia in from if we mark it from nineteen seventy onward that both camps that arose in that Presbytery recognized the same problem. And the problem was an antinomianism that grew out of an American evangelicalism that said, Trust Jesus. Mm. And it grew out of the crusade mentality that was, you know, got a lot of fervor in the, well, late 19th century all the way through the 20th century. And they both recognized, both camps at Westminster Seminary era in 1970 recognized that there wasn't a true holiness flowing out of the lives of people who thought they knew Jesus. But the response to that went two ways. It went the Norman Shepherd way, and it went the Jack Miller way. The Norman Shepherd way was to say, well, justification and sanctification are inseparable, and they're so inseparable that we're just going to say uh, they both have to be present for somebody to actually believe they're going uh, to heaven, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't distinguish them in the way that Reformed theology has in the past. The Jack Miller way was to say, no, this is actually gospel misunderstanding, and I'm not all for everything Jack Miller's ever said there's some qualifications that need to be said, and there's people who have taken his ideas and done far better with them um, than I think Jack did originally. Um, But Jack I think looked at it and said no it's not that they've missed out on the theology, they've actually missed out on the gospel. They didn't get the gospel right. That's why they aren't walking in lives of holiness.
1: Yeah. This was two different
2: responses to the same exact problem and we're still fighting that battle. Well,
1: what does Paul say to to Titus? The grace of God that brings salvation is what teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Right. Uh, you know, if the people aren't living lives of holiness, then they need the gospel. Yes. The law may be able to tell them how to live, but it can't empower them. It's the gospel that empowers us to, to holy living. And By again, the holy it's, one Spirit, of those, yeah. it's one of those ironic kind of paradoxes of... of uh, our most holy faith—that the way to get people, the worst way to get people to shape up is by uh, giving them law. <laughs> That's the worst <laughs> thing you can do. It's already been tried. Been there, done there, done that. Bought the T-shirt. You know, yeah. um, see the Old Testament uh, to see how that worked out. Um, no, we need to uh, teach people what Christ has done, so that their obedience can be motivated by gratitude for grace received, not for. Uh, hope of reward or out of fear of punishment.
2: Yeah, even just the basic structure. I teach this to congregation. The basic structure of the Heidelberg Catechism gives you the way to think about all this. Yeah. And the basic structure is guilt, grace, gratitude. The law forms our gratitude. Not it doesn't form the basis of our standing with God. It forms our gratitude. Shows us what goodness looks like. And,
1: and, uh, and doesn't the Heidelberg Catechism uh, put its uh, exposition of the Ten Commandments
2: in the gratitude section? Exactly right. Yeah. It forms our gratitude. That's what the law is supposed to do.
0: Yeah. Well, gentlemen, this has been a, a very interesting discussion, and I, I would encourage our listeners to um, uh, to go to—we'll put up some links. Uh, you can go. You can read these reports. Uh, obviously, uh, Peter Lighthart's books are out there. Um, obviously there are other materials out there, uh, by some of the other guys that we've mentioned, and maybe what I can do is, uh, put up a link to, uh, some of the books that we've mentioned here in the podcast, uh, that would be a benefit to further discuss these issues. Uh, we also encourage you to go to our, uh, blog and, uh, comment there, uh, interact there on the blog about these things, and, uh, maybe some of your questions can be part of future discussions, uh, here on the podcast.
1: Can I so. just jump in real quick, Sean, yeah. and say one last thing? Absolutely. I, I want to make sure everybody understands that, you know, Peter has been nothing but but gracious and humble and forthcoming
2: Absolutely. during this
1: entire process. Um, there has been a lot of, you know, heat uh, on both sides of this uh, debate, but it hasn't come from him. And mm-hmm. I, I have been nothing but impressed by um, his humbly submitting to... Uh, a second presbytery examination of his views. Um, he, as Matt pointed out, has been perfectly willing to say, "Wow, well, good point, let me think about that, or I'd like to retract that and say it this way. Um, and so that has made, I mean, his his attitude has made this process that none of us like anyways, but it, it has made it bearable mm. because um, he has done a good job of setting a humble tone and, and he should be commended for that.
2: Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely
0: great, very good. Uh, well, Jason, thank you so much for joining us.
1: It was
2: my pleasure,
0: and we'll have to uh, we'll have to have you on the the podcast again here in the future. Anytime, thank uh, Matt. Thanks for uh, thanks for talking.
2: Hey, no problem, my pleasure.
0: And uh, for all of you out there, may the Lord richly bless you as you pursue Him through His ordinary means.